You're listening to Hire Through Retire, a health and wealth podcast with FOIA leaders, Bill Harmon and Heather Lavalley, tackling all things from 401ks to HSAs and everything in between. We're talking to the best and brightest in the industry to bring you the latest in health, wealth, and investment trends in the workplace. Come along with us on our journey to help all Americans become well-planned, well-invested, and well-protected. Welcome back to Hire Through Retire, a health and wealth podcast. I'm here today again with my friend, colleague, and co-host, Heather Valley. Hey, Heather, here we are. We're, we're in March, and we're really getting some pod rhythm going. And I know we're particularly interested in having the conversation today. I like that. And pod rhythm, I'm glad that wasn't last month, Bill, because I, I don't know if that would have been a new Olympic event, pod rhythm <laughs> podcast. So uh, I like it, though. But, um, but great to be back with everyone today. We've got another really exciting show lined up and and one that I'm personally really jazzed about. For those of you who are avid listeners of Hire Through Retire, you know that we love to talk about research and insights. It's certainly a passion of ours at Boya and helps drive most everything we do. So over the course of the pandemic, research and insights have been even more valuable as we review how our customers and participants have been managing through the pandemic. Certainly, this includes financial challenges, but the pandemic has also led to some interesting changes in how both employers and employees perceive the idea of the workplace. So today, we are pleased to have a true expert when it comes to research, Walker Smith, Knowledge Lead at Kantar, a data and evidence-based agency providing insights and actionable recommendations to clients worldwide. At Kantar, Walker is responsible for ideas, content and knowledge globally for the consulting division of Kantar, including research, writing, publications, blogging, podcasting, vlogging, we'll figure out what that one is, webinars, speaking, client support, product support, marketing support, and media spokesperson. So we don't know when Walker sleeps um, because he's always at it. So, uh, you know, you name it, he does it. Walker, we are so thrilled to have you today. Thanks for joining. Thanks very much for having me. Uh, Very excited to be here. You know, I'll say, Walker, before we fully dive into today's themes, why don't you share a little bit more about your work at Kantar and uh, where you've been focused over the past few years when it comes to your research and insights? Sure. So we do a lot of things at Kantar. Uh, As you said, we're very much a a data-oriented consultancy. And We provide all kinds of data and information and analytics support for clients in a lot of different categories. But I do a very particular and specialized thing within Kantar, which is look at trends and futures, basically. So where is the marketplace headed? What are consumers thinking of? What's the changing dynamics of the consumer mindset? How are macro forces in the marketplace and society at large changing? What the marketplace has to offer and what consumers might aspire to? A lot of that does have to do with the workplace and certainly affects how people think about their finances. I often say that I find myself in most demand when times are tough. That's really when people want to understand trends and futures. So over the past couple of years, we've been doing a lot of stuff, just trying to figure out what's going to stick and what's not going to stick as we look ahead. But you know, therapy is, is good for self-improvement too, not just for sort of fixing things that get uh, broken. Um, and I sometimes describe myself as a commercial business therapist, just kind of helping clients make sense of what matters to them as they're trying to help consumers in the marketplace. And as we think about that, you know, 
we look at the marketplace, and I think we're beginning to understand that of all the things that are going on right now, there is sort of an overarching umbrella dynamic, if you will. And that is a growing amount of volatility in the marketplace. We've been very lucky over the past several decades of, of living in a time of relative stability. Now, hasn't been stable, hasn't felt stable, but in historical terms, it's been relatively stable politically, economically, socially. But we seem now to be sort of turning a corner on that and heading back into a period that's going to be characterized by a lot more volatility. That has a lot of implications for what businesses need to do to organize themselves and to operate in the marketplace. It also has a lot to do with how people uh, are going to approach their lifestyles and what they're going to think about in terms of planning, managing risk what they want to get out of their lives. You know, we often say that people have some expectation of the future that defines what they view as success that then instructs them on the kinds of skills they need in order to be successful in that way. And I, I think all of that is in flux right now. So that's, that's a lot of what we've been thinking about lately. That's great. And, and that's probably a great segue into uh, my first question. You, you talk about the future is uh, volatile, a little unclear. And I, and I want to kind of shift to uh, focus on uh, future of work. So in your most recent future view research uh, and knowing the audience is predominantly employers, right. there's a lot we can discuss as it pertains to the future of work and an evolving role employers play when it comes to financial guidance and financial security for individuals today. So can you tell us uh, broadly about some of the key insights you've gathered and particularly have then how these insights translate into new ways of working for employers? So I think there are several things going on. First is we see people restriking the balance of, of work and life in their lifestyles. And in the past, we've kind of thought of these as separate domains. I think increasingly people are realizing that there's a lot more overlap. It's very blurry. You know, the dividing lines aren't so clear. And I think what people are saying is that they won't work to embody uh, a different set of values. They won't work to feel a lot closer to the kind of world that they actually inhabit. And whether that means something about diversity, whether that means something about how they bring elements of their family and various kinds of priorities related to the home into the workplace, whatever that means, we see people just focused a lot more on trying to redefine that. Now, related to that, but, but really separate as a trend per se, is this phenomenon of hybrid work, which is really a consequence of the pandemic. And there is a built-in conflict here between employers and employees. You know, what we did was we went through this vast sort of involuntary global experiment in something that we would never have done had it not been for the pandemic. And not only did we figure out new things that we were able to do, we kind of learned some other lessons about things we liked and things we didn't like. So those lessons are not going to be unlearned. One of the things that employees learned is that notwithstanding all the difficulties involved in hybrid work styles, you get a lot more control back over your time. And control over time has become a key focus of people in their roles uh, in the workplace going forward. 
The conflict is that as companies are thinking about getting their businesses into this post-pandemic era, they're very much focused on leveraging an existing set of assets that they have in place. So, you know, it's the commercial real estate lease, of course, and all the furniture. But more than that, it's the ways in which they get things done. So there are all kinds of processes in place that for decades have been built around people all being in one location together. So it's how you get something accomplished. It's the support staff that you hire, the technologies that you have in place, the kinds of outside agencies that you use, the way you hire people, the way you train people, the way you evaluate people. These are all processes that cost money to change and reinvent. So you have companies, you know, broadly speaking, companies, quote unquote, on the one hand with a real asset focus, and you've got employees on the other hand, thinking about their lifestyles and getting control back over their time. And there is a built-in conflict there, but we're headed to a world in which there is going to be some change as much as there is friction here. And we're looking at, at a more hybrid work style going forward, which changes people's priorities. It changes the way people spend money. It changes people's lifestyle habits. And we're only beginning to see the specifics uh, of what that means for the marketplace. You know, I just think it's so fascinating. And you mentioned it, this kind of involuntary experiment that we all got thrown into globally, and everyone had to go ahead and kind of listen and react and so on. And I, I've seen you speak to some incredible research you've done on different generations. And, that, and as our kind of local millennial right here, I was really fascinated on how you characterized some of everyone's chuckling for those that can't see right now. And I'm sure there's a lot of thinking on that too, on the generations while everyone went into the same environment, but there's a different way to react. And really what that comes to is you talk about one of these words right here is concept of empathy. Right. And I'd really like to dig deeper into that. So when it comes to empathy and thinking about your employees, when you're looking at it from the employer perspective, what advice would you have for companies who might be looking to lead more with empathy, considering we all were thrown into this involuntary and how do we handle everyone's current state of mind? So you mentioned that from generations. Let me, let me talk about that idea of empathy from a generational standpoint first, and then dig into it uh, a little bit more. As we went through the pandemic, you know, there were sort of two different generational universes going on. So older people were more at risk from the disease itself. So the physical consequences of the disease, more at risk than younger people. Younger people, on the other hand, have suffered disproportionately from mental health consequences uh, from the pandemic and the isolation and the quarantining. So young people were living in a world where it was all about their mental health. Older people were living in a world where it was all about their physical health. So the experience of the pandemic was fundamentally different uh, across generational cohorts. And of course, millennials are these days. They're, you know, I'm, I'm sorry to tell you this, Bill, but they're not uh, these young uh, kids anymore. And, um, <laughs> they're sort of right at that cutting point, you know, between these sort of two, uh, two different types of experiences. And so I think one of the first things involved in empathy is just beginning to have a better understanding of the life experience that people go through and how that relates to uh, what they're doing in the workplace. 
some of that is, you know, an exercise of just sort of looking in the mirror and saying, what is it that I like and don't like? And how can I treat people with that same sort of understanding that I have of, of myself? But I think more important than, or not more important, but equally important is, is to have a research program in place that is, that is very robust with respect to points of view and perspectives and angles. Research itself has, has come under a lot of scrutiny for biases that might be built into the way in which we ask questions, the way in which we analyze results, because it's not empathetic to the, to the true life experience of a lot of the people that we're interviewing. And the way you get around that is, is not to sort of make your existing techniques ever more sophisticated. It's to layer in other techniques that can bring you a different perspective on the same kind of issue so that you're beginning to get more of a 360 degree view of what it is you're studying. And I think from an organizational standpoint, it is this learning process that needs to be uh, reinvented. We need to be learning faster. We need to be learning more empathetically, if you will. We need to be bringing data together in more original ways. And a lot of this just involves some new processes, but a lot of it is just uh, a commitment that organizations can make to opening themselves up to different perspectives on the ways in which people engage in their lifestyles and in the workplace. We refer to this as human centricity. You know, so there's this mantra in business that goes back 15 years or so, you know, where we've got to go back to customer centricity. You know, at the turn of the century, we were telling ourselves, We'd sort of lost sight of the fact that it's got to be the customer at the center of the business, and we've got to put the customer back in the middle. And and we did all of that. And a lot of that was about just collecting ever more data. I think we've gotten to this point, and we're now beginning to realize that it's not really about customer centricity. It's about human centricity. And we've got to put the human back at the center of our businesses not just the customer per se. And, and that you know, is a 30,000-foot kind of idea, but it has some real implications for the ways in which we, we go about approaching what we learn and, and what we need to know about how to engage with people in the marketplace. Walker, I, I love that phrase, human centricity, and, and I want to build on some of the themes you've talked about this afternoon. The future is unclear. There's a lot more volatility and the need for employers to have a greater degree of empathy and human centricity. So if I bring this kind of back to, to your research and thinking about companies as employers, you know, as companies are thinking about preparing for disruption, really becoming a way of doing business, one item stuck with me when you said, most of the standard ways of doing business were invented and perfected during a past that saw greater stability than will be true of the future. Based on that particular comment in your research, what are the ways in which companies can plan for disruption of the future? First of all, we just have to sort of admit this to ourselves, right? You know, just in time, for example, supply chains have taught us that, gosh, that whole logistical strategy was developed during a a time of relative stability that we just thought was going to last forever. And and we didn't really build any robustness into it, much less any resiliency or ability to recover quickly from disruptions to it. 
So uh, I do think we're, we're beginning to understand that a lot of the processes that we use to maximize efficiency, to optimize our profitability are things that have an underlying presumption of some relative stability in the marketplace. And from a planning standpoint, you know, I think we need to to sort of get away from this idea that things are black and white, you know, that there are binary choices out there. We do one thing or another thing that instead we need to plan against the probability that something will occur versus the probability that something else will occur and to have contingencies built into the ways in which we work. And then that has some implications for how we engage employees in our companies. So, you know, we've had a lot of dedicated functions uh, within our companies that are specialized in particular areas. But as companies have to move to being, and I hate to use this jargon word, but it does sort of capture the ideas, companies move to being a little bit more agile in their ability to respond to marketplace contingencies. You've got to be able to redeploy your workforce more resiliently than we've planned for in the past. And that means you, you've really got to develop people more. People have got to have multiple uh, skills. It, it, people have got to be problem solvers as opposed to task executors. And I think it means we've got to probably invest a lot more in people than, than we've been willing to do in the past. I, I also think it reminds us that People are, are very adaptable. Algorithms are not very adaptable. I mean, algorithms are great, but if something changes, it's hard to sort of change the algorithm in a hurry. But people can pivot. You know, when, when people are, are trained to do that, when people understand what it takes to do that, people can make very quick uh, shifts to respond to all of the things that are that are going on around us. And, and I think that's more of the emphasis that we're going to have to have looking ahead. You know, Walker, I, I want to go back to when you're talking about, it seemed like an evolution from customer centricity to human centricity. But I got to imagine we certainly can't take our eye off being customer centric. You just have to augment that focus right. to now be more human centric. So if you do it that way, you probably will have a really solid approach that will be foundational for success. And I got to imagine much of that will stem off of customer data. So what are some ways in which companies can be leveraging their own customer data to help them succeed? The answer is a little bit paradoxical, but it is to collect more of it. And by that, I don't mean, you know, just more of the kind of digital big data that we've been collecting, although we need lots of that. So we need to, to have that kind of understanding of the business, but we need to layer more information in on top of that, that enables us to tell a richer story about the marketplace. Because that's, that's really ultimately what we do. You know, we run our businesses on the basis of some narrative of the marketplace that we think describes how our company is going to create value in the marketplace. A little bit of what's happened over the past few years is that we've begun to kind of lose the narrative of the marketplace uh, a little bit. We're trying to recover that and we're beginning to realize that a lot of the data that we have in hand doesn't necessarily help us do that. We've got to have more data, richer data. We need a richer understanding of this. So the analogy I use is sort of looking up in the sky. You know, you see the stars and you can connect the dots. And we've talked a lot about connecting the dots uh, in conjunction with things like big data. But when you see the constellation, you know, there around the dots that you collect, you're, you're actually bringing some imagination, you know, to what you see. 
that's the richer view that we need to to bring to the marketplace these days not merely connecting the dots but but actually being able to see what that is the scaffolding of you know what is it supporting what is the richer view that surrounds that and i i just think that's going to depend upon our ability to to bring a more imaginative understanding uh, of where the marketplace is headed. There's a guy by the name of Ted Levitt, long since uh, passed away, but he was one of the famous marketing gurus at the Harvard Business School back in the 60s and 70s and 80s. And he wrote a lot about various kinds of ways of thinking as marketers. One of the things he talked a lot about was imagination. And he said, you know, we, we fall into the trap of thinking that the way you run a business is sort of making the choices you have at hand. He said, anybody can do that. He said, people who really run the business are the people who envision the possibilities that you choose from to begin with. It is the imagination to understand what the new choices are that you can make in the marketplace and then going in that direction. I think that's, you know, again, at 30,000 feet, how we need to sort of come back to ourselves and, and remind ourselves what's really involved in running a business successfully. It, it's not just making a lot of choices as efficiently as possible. It's having some imagination that enables us to see new possibilities and open up new choices that, that we can make. And, and that's a lot of what we need to be doing these days as, as we think about how to focus on things like customer centricity. I'm going to wrap with one last question, but I want to link it back to this idea of imagination, because in order to have imagination, or I think to have your, your employees have imagination, you need to have some semblance of, of security in, in your life, some sense of stability. So I want to wrap with a last question around financial security. And specifically, uh, when we talk about you know, planning for disruption, becoming a theme for employers, and then when it comes to the theme of financial security amid the disruption, you know, where do you think employers should be focused on when it comes to supporting their workforce and really around that concept of financial security? Oftentimes we get carried away by new things and novelty, and we think that people just want to endlessly experiment and take chances and go for the next big thing. And I often sort of counsel clients by saying consumers don't really aspire to the next big thing. They want to get back to the old things. You know, they're not aspiring to the new normal. They just want to get back to normal a lot of times. So, so in the face of, of ever more volatility, I, I think this idea of security is going to be more and more important to people. People want some kind of a safe harbor. They'll venture out into the rough seas, but they need a place to come back to. And I, I think security more broadly is a key brand imperative for all categories going forward. I think financial security in particular is going to be really important to people as they think about how they can manage their lives in the face of of a lot of volatility ahead. We have seen, you know, a lot of conversation here over the past year or so about the so-called great resignation. Uh, And it is true that monthly quit rates are up. Uh, You know, we haven't tracked them, but for about 20 years, but Over this 20-year period, we are now seeing kind of record levels of quit rates. It's important to remind ourselves what's really going on here. You know, in the middle of the pandemic, 
we actually saw something you don't typically see during downturns, and that is a positive wealth effect because government support came in very quickly and very generously, both for individuals and small businesses, in ways that was atypical compared to what government has done during past downturns. So unlike the financial crisis where we had a negative wealth effect for several years, rich and poor, we've had more of a positive wealth effect coming out of the pandemic, both again, rich and poor. And so people have actually come out of the pandemic with a little bit of a financial cushion to be able to make some new choices in their lives. And that's what's really going on beneath the great resignation. As we look ahead to volatility and a lot of the things that are going on, geopolitical, inflation, you know, et cetera, that's going to cut right into that financial cushion, that security that people feel. And so I think we're going to see more interest, more concern, more need for that kind of financial security going forward, particularly given the fact that people have suddenly discovered that having a little bit of that financial security opens up a lot of choices for them and their lifestyles that enable them to take advantage of some of the volatility. You just don't get to do that without having a secure financial base. I think that just becomes ever more important as, as we look ahead. Walker, well, uh, thank you. You know, your insights today, incredibly valuable. And the work you do is not only very, very interesting, but it's something that, you know, as we all move into new ways of working, will be incredibly valuable for us and our, and our listeners. So just thank you for being here with us today. Thank you. Enjoyed it. You know, Walker, I'd also like to say thank you. And, and our listeners, those particularly that are employers, as they're kind of thinking about how to be creative and battle with this war for talent, You've given them some really good insights. So don't be too surprised if we're going to reach out to you again and give it some additional updates because I think it's very, very valuable. I'd like to thank all of our listeners for joining us today and please continue to stay well. This information is provided by Voyer for your education only. Neither Voyer nor its representatives offer tax or legal advice. Any opinions expressed within do not necessarily reflect those of the Voya family of companies or its representatives and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. Please consult your tax or legal advisor before making a tax-related investment or insurance decision. Products and services offered through the Voya family of companies.